Welcome to Bible Fiber. I am Shelley Neese, president of the Jerusalem Connection, a Christian organization devoted to sharing the story of the people of Israel, both ancient and modern. This week, we are continuing our study of the book of Ezra, diving into chapter 5. After the plotting and scheming of Judah's oppositional neighbors, all work on the temple stopped around 535 BCE, still during the reign of King Cyrus. The returnees had laid the temple foundations, an event that attracted negative attention from the people of the land, and for the next 15 years did nothing to move the temple project forward. On the surface, opposition from the people of the land and interference by Persian administrators was too much to overcome for the returnees. At least, that was the external reasoning for delaying the temple objective, as narrated in the book of Ezra. Internally, however, more was going on. The prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah offer a peek behind the scenes, exposing the weakened spiritual condition of the restored community. Chapter 5 picks up the story where it left off in Ezra 4, 4 4-5, before the parenthetical flash-forward of events. After Zerubbabel rejected the locals' offer to help with the rebuild, the people of the land shot back. They discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build by bribing Persian officials to frustrate their plan. By falsely accusing the Judeans of sedition, they succeeded in throwing cold water on the returnees' initial zeal. External setbacks gave the community an excuse to forego the very project that should have been their priority. Ezra 5 introduced the prophets Haggai and Zechariah as ordained messengers sent in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. We know Haggai and Zechariah were contemporary to the early events recorded in Ezra. Both prophetic books placed them in the second year of King Darius. All of Haggai's recorded oracles took place over the course of 20 days. Zechariah's recorded prophetic career seems to have gone on longer, but he also overlapped the events of the first wave of returnees. As a historical rather than prophetic text, the narrator of Ezra never gave way to messianic thoughts or eschatological predictions. We only know from Haggai and Zechariah that those ideas heavily impacted the Judeans of that era. The narrator of Ezra also held back details on the actual message of the prophets to the people. He only mentioned their historical proximity and acknowledged their effectiveness in encouraging the remnant to get back to building. The placing of Haggai and Zechariah in the narrative of the book of Ezra is one of those rare sightings of a prophet in the wild. Knowing the time of Haggai and Zechariah and the challenges faced by the return remnant is critical in understanding the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, particularly the more cryptic visions of Zechariah. In the same way, the prophets are beneficial in seeing between the lines of the narrative text of Ezra. Neither prophet credited the local opposition for frustrating the temple project or expounded on the external threats. The prophet's job was to analyze what was going on in the hearts and minds of the community. The intervention of neighbors and the empire may have caused the first delay. However, by the time Haggai ministered, the people were procrastinating out of sheer complacency. Haggai sarcastically noted, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Apparently, while God's house remained a heaping ruin, the remnant busily constructed their own homes. Haggai asked, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai pointed out all the goals they let take priority over the temple rebuild. How could they claim that it was not yet time to build God's house if they had built homes for themselves? Neglecting the building of the temple was not just the fault of Judah's leaders, but it was a failure of the whole community. Their apathy about rebuilding the sanctuary was reflective of an apathy towards Yahweh in general. The temple was meant to be an earthly reflection of the relationship between the returnees and Yahweh. Without a restored temple, they were prone to focus on the minutia of life and not the glory of God. According to Haggai, the drought and crop failure of the restored community's early years was a result of Yahweh's judgment on them. Though they had planted and labored, they did so in vain because God was withholding the rains and the produce. They had not connected their agricultural hardship to their neglect of the sanctuary. Haggai twice warned them, consider your ways. Haggai gave the community exact instructions for how to move forward and right their wrongs. The narrator of Ezra credited the prophets with stirring Zerubbabel and Jeshua to action. Haggai directly brought the word of the Lord commanding the people to go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. The community obeyed God's word and overcame their 15-year hiatus. In shorter order, they set out to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. News of the temple construction in Jerusalem made its way to Tatanai, a Persian provincial official overseeing affairs from Damascus. In fact, archaeologists found an artifact from 502 BC which included the name Tatanai, governor beyond the river. The narrator did not say how Tatanai knew of the efforts in Jerusalem. Presumably, as soon as the temple work got going again, the upset locals appealed for imperial intervention. Tatanai and his officials visited Jerusalem in person to investigate the situation. They spoke with the builders and the leaders of the community, asking, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? The size of the great stones for the building was suspicious. Without hostility in their tone, the dutiful bureaucrats double-checked who gave the Jews authority to build a monumental structure. This was an ancient version of authorities checking for building permits. After speaking with the Judean leaders, Tatanai wrote a letter of inquiry to King Darius. The letter was different than the manipulative and accusatory letters in Ezra 4 written by Judah's neighboring enemies. Tatanai essentially asked King Darius if he would like his Persian leaders to investigate further the matter of temple building in Jerusalem. Tatanai's letter was complimentary of the temple's craftsmanship, which would allay any concerns about the building not being up to Persian code. He wrote, May it be known to the king that it is being built of hewn stone and timber is laid in the walls. This work is being done diligently and prospers in their hands. Once again, the remnant was building the second temple along the same guidelines as Solomon's temple, layering heavy stones with alternating rows of timber. The letter to Darius relayed the questions and answer conversation between the Persian administrators and Judean elders. The questions showed the Persians had no bias against the Judeans or their project, The answers also demonstrated what must have come up in the conversation. For example, there was an inquiry into who was backing the temple project financially, 
because the elders mentioned Cyrus's return of the stolen temple vessels from the imperial treasury. Tatanai, as a provincial official, could not give a directive to the Persian king. Instead, he suggested, if it seems good to the king, have a search made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by King Cyrus for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. If a search uncovered proof of Cyrus's authorization of the Jerusalem temple, it would still be the prerogative of King Darius whether to honor the edict. In 530 BCE, Cyrus died in the mountains of India after a 30-year reign. He was succeeded by his son, Cambyses II, who lacked his father's military and diplomatic genius. Cyrus's legacy still loomed large when King Darius violently took the throne from Cyrus's next legal heir. Darius I worked hard to secure his throne from rivals. Much is known about the reign of Darius I because Greek historians recorded his legendary exploits. Knowing that revolts plagued the first two years of King Darius's reign, it also makes sense why Persian bureaucrats were hyper-alert to any potential stirrings of revolt in the empire. With the appeal to Darius for an answer on the temple project, the Jewish community could not be sure of his response. Was Darius committed to honoring the goals and achievements of Cyrus as the founder of the Persian Empire? Or was he ready to make a firm break with the dynasty and forge his own path? At no point did Tatanai or his officials make the Jews stop their temple construction, while they waited for Darius's response or while a Persian court official conducted the search for the Edict of Cyrus. The narrator made sure that only God received the credit for the favor shown to the remnant in Jerusalem. He emphasized that the God of Israel was over them and helping them. Even in the conversation between the provincial officials and the elders, the narrator wrote, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. The Jewish leaders understood God was over them and carefully protecting them. As God guided their exchange, they answered Tatanai's questions honestly and not defensively. They introduced themselves to the Persian officials as the servants of the God of heaven and earth a humble reply that was true to their own monotheistic beliefs, even if they did not correspond to the Persian religious system. They were forthcoming in their recounting of their own sin and punishment, telling Tatanai, because our ancestors had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Their explanation was not only honest and accepting of self-blame, but also careful to allay any Persian fears that the motivation for the reconstruction was political. They downplayed any notion that the reconstruction of the capital was a move towards independence. In the ancient world, destruction of a holy temple often hinted at the powerlessness of a local deity. In the case of Jewish historical recounts, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple displayed the power of Yahweh. He allowed for the overthrow of his temple and city as punishment for their covenant unfaithfulness. Israel's understanding of history must always take divine providence into account. I hope what strikes you in the crossover of these three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, is the importance of reading scripture broadly with attention to the prophet's cross-referencing of the narratives and vice versa. Devotional study and verse memory are wonderful, but I always advocate for studying the Bible in context, looking for larger patterns and themes. 
Thank you for listening and please continue to participate in this Bible reading challenge. Next week, we are reading Ezra 6. The royal court finds the original decree of Cyrus and it is up to King Darius if he will honor it. For all the biblical references each week, please see the show transcript on our blog or by signing up for our emails at thejerusalemconnection.us. I don't say all the references in the podcast, but they are all in the transcript. Send me a message, I'll respond. Bible Fiber is available on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. Shabbat Shalom.